Hey guys, before we get into the episode this week, I wanted to let you know that this one could be triggering. We're discussing murder and there's some pretty graphic details. As always, if you or someone you know is in need of support, please go to our website, drunkcrimepod.com slash resources, and we have a list of organizations that can help. Hi, I'm Alex. And I'm Lindsay. And we really like talking about true crime and drinking. This week, Alex has a super twisty case to tell us about. This case progresses over decades and has you questioning if someone could really get away with murder. This is going to be good. So grab a drink, get comfy, and let's listen to Alex tell us about murder. Okay, what are you drinking today, Lindsay? I, because apparently we are being fancy. We're being so fancy. I was going to make a martini, but just... You weren't feeling it, the vibe. I wasn't feeling it. I was like, I don't want to add olive juice to something. Like, I just do not. I I did like a fruity martini. Yeah, I was going to do a grapefruit martini, but then I didn't want to go get grapefruits (laughs) because it's cold out. And it's I have limes, so I decided to make a gimlet because that also sounds fancy. It does. And it's just gin, my favorite lovebird gin, lime yes. juice, and simple syrup. Oh, easy peasy. And then you just shake it in a shaker with ice for 30 seconds so it gets super, super cold. Yeah. And by shaker, I mean a water bottle with a lid and oh. pour it into a glass. Okay, well, like, that's smart. One of the Contigo ones, because then you can strain it through the top and nothing comes out. Well, I really appreciate your ingenuity. And I also don't have a martini glass, so it's in a stemless wine glass. (laughs) Mine too. (laughs) (laughs) I was also supposed to shake mine, but I also don't have a shaker and my ingenuity was clearly lacking today. (laughs) So I just poured it all in here and literally stirred it. So it is not cold, which sucks kind of. But I also I don't believe in olives personally or olive juice because you can't have juice of something that you don't believe in. So I got the ultra number one most delicious grape vodka of all time. We got this on Thanksgiving. We opened it on Thanksgiving evening. We finished it on Thanksgiving evening. <laughs> it was so good. My boyfriend who doesn't drink drinks this. He loves this. It's unreal. So Grit City. Big old shout out to Grit City Grape Vodka. Ooh. I put grape vodka. I put triple sec. It's like a Cosmo, like a grape Cosmo oh, okay. kind of thing. So I put grape vodka, triple sec, mm-hmm. lime. Yeah. And like, I don't have cranberry juice, which is normal Cosmo <laughs> and it's grape Cosmo. Yeah. So I just threw a little bit of splash of like an orange mango juice that I had in. Yeah. And stirred it around like it's a poor person shaker, which is not even a thing because apparently that's a water bottle and I didn't know. Yeah. Just like shake it a little good, though. Yeah. Yes. Well, and so side note, if you mix this vodka with 
So Joel was mixing it with uh, watermelon, no sh- like sugar-free monsters and lime. Oh, yeah. <sighs> that tastes like candy liquid. That would. It's delicious. It like a Jolly Rancher. Yep. That's, that's exactly what it tastes like. No wonder they all liked it so much. She, <laughs> um, Jen, who's the master distiller scientist woman, genius. Mm-hmm. She said, if you like sweet drinks, mix it with seven up. And yeah. if you like them less sweet, just, yeah. um, like soda water and lime. Oh, okay. I didn't want to make a vodka soda tonight because less fancy. We're trying to fancy it up. Yeah. So here we are, <laughs> but it's like, it's like fun dip. It's just, Oh, it's so tasty. Big, big, big old fan fans of local distillers. We are love birds, gin, grit city vodka. We're on the hunt for more. <laughs> Follow us. Give us <laughs> your recommendation. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. Michelle. All right. Why are we drinking fancy drinks? You may ask. It's because we're talking about rich people today. <laughs> <laughs> I messaged you and it would have been like weeks ago. I said I was interested in this case, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, there's been some real shit that's been going down recently and I didn't know, but maybe I had some psychic moments where the universe Mm -hmm. was guiding me this way because this is pretty cool that this is going down. So today I am going to tell you about the case of Robert Durst. I'm very excited because I don't know anything about this one. Well, I mean, it's not a happy case, but it's a better case than other it's a less sad let me fix that it's a less super depressing case than others yeah okay i don't even know if that's true but like it just we'll just go with it okay so let's dig in so robert durst he was born on april 12th 1943 in new york city and his Mm -hmm. parents were seymour and bernice durst so he's the oldest of four he has two younger brothers and a younger sister I think that his first brother is three years younger, his sister is four years younger, and his youngest brother is seven years younger. I think that's how that went. Oh, okay. His dad, Seymour, he ran a very successful real estate business. So there mm-hmm. are managers and developers in New York City. Yeah. And the business was actually founded by his father in 1927. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So it's his dad grandpa Durst had some serious kind of like, it was literally come to the United States, start from nothing, work his way up into being this mogul and starting this family business. So the Durst family had and has just a ridiculous amount of money, like crazy, lots of money that you can't even like fathom, like grandchildren forever have lots of money wealth generational wealth that's not going anywhere yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah that that is this family so seymour it's called the durst organization well durst organization it's called mm-hmm. um but it's there it's all in real estate in new york so unfortunately bernice died when robert was seven years old so that would make the youngest mm-hmm. child was i think only nine months oh that's sad yeah robert says he saw his mother die The story that he tells is that his dad grabbed him and they looked out the window and his dad Mm -hmm. said, wave to mommy. And then Bernice jumped off the roof. The actual fuck. 
the others, the family disagrees. So they're saying uh, that she slipped and fell. Um, there were complications with some sort of asthma medication. She had really mm-hmm. severe asthma and that's what resulted in her death. I kind of don't understand why she was on the roof in her nightgown. Any like regardless, unless it was some sort of suicide attempt. I don't I don't know. But Robert and the family disagree. Yeah. And the family, his brother actually says Robert never saw anything. Oh, but his brother would have been his oldest brother would have been four years old at the time. I mean, everybody has kids have weird memories to begin with. Right. Of everything. Who knows what that actual story is, but Mm -hmm. she ultimately did die either accidental death or death by suicide when he Mm -hmm. was seven years old. Sad, super sad, regardless. Super sad, really sad. So the kids were ultimately mostly raised by nannies because Mm -hmm. Seymour was working his butt off at the real estate, like at the Durst organization. So Mm -hmm. lots of nannies, a little bit of dad. And so Robert acted out a lot. They basically mm-hmm. describe him as being just a complete shit as a kid. He was oh, okay. always getting into trouble. He was always act out, acting out. He didn't listen to authority figures, like never listened to his nannies. And he was always fighting with his brothers. At some point, he apparently went and saw a psychologist or psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. There was just, there was lots of trouble and turmoil for Robert when he was younger. He describes himself yeah. as having like a really shitty childhood. So like, like he describes it as shitty and then everyone describes him as being shitty. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he graduated from high school and he got a bachelor's degree in economics from Lehigh University, which okay. I looked up. It's a small private university and yeah. I think it's in Pennsylvania. Okay. It sounds um, like that yeah private (laughs) fancy that was in 1965 he graduated with this this is his schooling is a little bit weird at this point so he really quickly after he got his degree he signs up for claremont uh claremont graduate university to get his master's degree in economics okay so that would have been in 65 that he signs up yeah he then also enrolls in UCLA in their doctorate program to get his PhD in economics in 67. Oh, okay. So he's simultaneously enrolled in a master's and doctoral program in two different universities. So he ultimately gets his master's. Super weird, right? He actually does get his master's in 1969. Oh, okay. But he takes a leave of absence from UCLA in, in 69 as well and doesn't actually ever end up going back. Oh, okay. He tells his family that he gets, he got his PhD, but he but didn't. Oh, okay. He's, he's lying about it. <laughs> Does the family believe uh, him or do they? I think they do. Okay. Because I read somewhere that he ends up telling his wife that, like kind of admitting and asking yeah. her not to say anything. Oh, okay. I think they must have, or he wouldn't, his wife wouldn't have later said that. Yeah. Okay. It's at UCLA that he meets his longtime friend, Susan Berman. I'll, we're, we're just going over character backgrounds right now. So I'll introduce you to Susan in a second. Um, after he leaves UCLA, though, he moves back to New York to help with his family business empire. Taking over the world via real estate. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Susan Berman. 
so she was the, she was a crazy story. <laughs> Got excited. <laughs> she was the daughter of a mafia guy. <laughs> Jesus. So her dad was born in 1903 in the Ukraine. Yeah. And then he moved with his family to the States where he began his illustrious mafia career yeah. at the ripe old age of 13 years old. Oh, Jesus. So his name was David Berman and his mafia name was Davy the Jew. <laughs> <laughs> he married Gladys. She was a dancer. I don't know what kind of dancer somewhere said, um, tap dancer another place said she was like a a showgirl okay but she was a dancer of some sort yeah and they had their only daughter their only child which was susan so he david kind of goes around a little bit and he does some things here and there with his little mafia he's connected with murder inc yeah if you've heard of them he's connected to a couple of famous mobsters and eventually he ends up basically just telling people that he's running the flamingo casino in vegas so if he says it so it is i guess (laughs) and so he starts running it in 1947 and he was killed in 1957 on the job whatever that means so there was some sort of mafia death okay yeah, well, that's suspicious and interesting. It's so suspicious and interesting. <laughs> Maybe we need to have a drunk crime that's about mafia business. Gladys died a year after David died. Um, mm. She died by suicide. She overdosed. Oh. So Susan kind of, yeah, it was pretty shitty. I think um, Susan was only 14 when that happened. So Susan left UCLA for journalism school, but actually kept up her relationship with Robert. So they both kind of left UCLA. And some people describe it as like a brother sister type relationship. Yeah. The whole time they stayed connected, I got no indication that it was ever any kind of romantic relationship at all. Sorry. Really good friends. Yeah, exactly. So Susan actually ends up writing two books about her dad's mafia business. Oh, cool. So yeah. One's called easy street and one's called lady Las Vegas, which is a cool name. Yeah. I I want that to be like, I was going to say that it's like your persona. Yeah, totally. <laughs> It'd be so good. <laughs> like your, what is Beyonce's like, Sasha Fierce? That's yours. Yeah. Like, like, <laughs> Alter ego. Yeah. <laughs> and I love Las Vegas. <laughs> I feel like that could be me. All right. So moving on with our cast of characters, we have Kathy McCormick. McCormack. Not Mick Mack. <laughs> Kathy was born in 1953 and she grew up on Long Island. She was the youngest of five kids. So many kids. So many kids. (laughs) Uh, She's described as super popular and creative as she was growing up. So she, there was a story where she was able to like see a dress that somebody was wearing in Vogue and she would just sew it for herself without a pattern. She's created. Oh, yeah. That's amazing. Totally. It's super talented. Yeah. She was like, I saw somewhere that she dated the captain of the football team and she was that kind of girl, super confident. Her dad died when she was 14 years old. He was, he was involved in sales in some way. And so her mom went to work to support the family. Yeah. 
Like her siblings were older than her, but still like it's still a full household that you need to support. So her mom actually went to work at the same place that her dad did before he died. And after high school, Kathy and her friend moved to Manhattan, moved to the city (laughs) and they worked as dental hygienists. Okay. That's which is so yeah. But like a job to have right out of high school. How? Oh yeah. I don't know. I wouldn't so want someone right out of high school. Just mess my mouth. <laughs> no, not at all. I read, I read it like two or three times and I read it in a bunch of different places. Like this is real. It's real life. Yeah. She, they were dental hygienists. So that is mostly it in our cast of characters. We'll find another, we'll pick up some more along the way. So the story. So Robert meets Kathy at a party that Robert was hosting at his apartment. Kathy was 19 years old when they met and Robert, I think was 10 years older. She was born in 53 and he was born in 43. So yeah, he's 10 years. He was, he would have been 29. Okay. Everyone said that basically as soon as they met, sparks were flying. Chemistry was strong. (laughs) They were pretty much infatuated with each other right away. It was aggressive. It was coming on strong and fast for these two. Yeah. I mean, it must have been she was super into him talking about accounting. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Economics. He's talking about numbers and she's like, wow. I can show you the world. (laughs) (laughs) So apparently after just two dates, Mm -hmm. Bob tells her about this plan that he's been creating where he wants to go and open up a grocery store in Vermont. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. He asks her to come with him after just two dates. It's just, they it's described as just this storybook romance. Oh, okay. So, yeah. And she goes. The store was called All Good Things. That's cute. Which, I like that. Like, it was basically like Whole Foods, <laughs> I think. Yeah, okay. Unfortunately, the grocery store really didn't last long. Maybe a year. It closed the following year after they opened it, after they moved to open it anyway. So, oh, okay. Maybe a year, maybe a little less, maybe a little more. But they came home back to New York and they ended up getting married. Kathy would later... When she was talking about their marriage, she said that when they moved back, the topic of marriage came up. This is how she described it. The topic of marriage came up. And Robert said, yes, this is a quote. Yes, I will marry you. But if it doesn't work out in three years or so, we will get a divorce. Just so So, casual about it. (laughs) Storybook romance is no longer romantic, I guess. Storybook to like, oh, yeah, like I'll marry you if you want to. But like, if I'm not into it in three years, like I'm going to go away. Circle back, reevaluate. Yeah. Which I mean, like, theoretically might be a good idea, okay. but I don't know. <laughs> That's pretty blunt. They do end up getting married, though. So they got married on April 12th in 1973. It was an extremely small wedding. So only Kathy's mom and Robert's dad went and oh. like a priest. And that's it. Oh, that was going to be my next question. Like, was it extravagant or was it just like, Mm-mm. let's pretend this isn't actually happening. <laughs> That's how I feel like it is. I mean, power to small weddings. Yeah. If I get married again, it'll be small, but like not for people small. It's not that like, it's not the small part that's weird. It's the part, it's the combination of the mm-hmm. reluctance on his end that seems at the beginning. Yeah. In com- like well, combined they- with like the smallness. Especially with how like the relationship was described in the beginning. It just doesn't seem to fit. It's the weird reluctance. Like he's doing her a favor. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Like we'll do this for you if you want really quickly. They got married. They, they yeah. basically got married right after they moved back after their store closed. Oh. So in 1974, a year after they got married, Kathy enrolled in nursing school. And two years after that, they bought a cottage on the lake in South Salem, about 15 miles away from her school. Like to live full time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. It didn't take long though, before there were issues in the marriage. I don't know if you saw that coming. So <laughs> by that one. Yeah. Robert was cheating up a storm and Kathy felt like he was controlling. Yeah. So he describes it in, there's an HBO mini series called the jinx yeah. about him. And he's interviewed in it quite a bit. And yeah. he says, you know, she go, she went from liking when I would take control to disliking it. Oh. is how he describes it. Yeah. Um, but either way, she she was kind of not interested in the way that he she felt that he was controlling the relationship at yeah. that point. Um, evidence of that included Robert basically demanding that they move to Manhattan. He wasn't interested in living on the lake anymore. So he said that they needed to move to Manhattan and Kathy needed to transfer to a different school. So he forced her to switch to NYU so that they could live in an apartment in Manhattan. Yeah. Was he working for the, like his family? Yeah. So I, after he came back from the, after they moved back from the grocery store situation, he went back to the family business. Oh, okay. Sounds so quaint when you say family business. Just a little family (laughs) business. Like, no, the family empire. Yeah, exactly. More evidence of how controlling he was. I mean, kind of Robert had said all along that he didn't want kids. This was something that they had agreed on really early in their relationship. Yeah. And so when she told him she was pregnant, he, she decided that she wanted to keep the baby. Yeah. And he basically gave her an ultimatum. He said that she gets an abortion or they get divorced. He admits basically everywhere in any conversation. He said that he pressured her to get an abortion. He, I mean, his justification is I never wanted kids. He says in the movie or in the series, the jinx that he didn't think he would be a good parent. He didn't want to be, he didn't think he would be a good dad. So he didn't want to risk it. He thought he was a jinx, but still that's shitty to do. Yeah, it is shitty to do to somebody, your wife, he, (laughs) And he's pretty cold when he talks about it too. He's like, you know, this was, this was her thing to deal with. It was her, basically her responsibility that she needed to not get pregnant. And then she did. So I made her deal with that too. Like pretty sure it's also partially your fault, dude. Pretty sure it takes two, bud. Yeah. That's in no way fine. Like he doesn't have, like, it's his fault too. If he didn't want kids, get a vasectomy. Like, fuck you. It's not her responsibility. If you don't want kids, get a vasectomy. So you didn't do that. You have no right to tell her to lay that down, get an abortion, or I'm going to leave you. It's your problem to deal with. Absolutely not. He says (laughs) he's quoted as saying, this may have been part of the cause of our problems. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) So this, this whole situation ended up kind of really escalating and Mm -hmm. progressing the downfall of their relationship. Yeah. So she also ended up graduating from nursing school and she enrolled in medical school in 1978. Interestingly, she was wanting to be a pediatric doctor. So she obviously liked kids quite a bit. And so this was kind of going to be her way to 
help out, help kids. Yeah. Things obviously continued though to deteriorate in mm-hmm. her relationship. So she's moving forward in her professional life and things are looking good. And in mm-hmm. her personal life, not good. She had also started cheating at this point and the couple was just, they were fighting steady. Mm -hmm. Kathy had approached a divorce lawyer, which is where we have a lot of these quotes from. And at one point she asked Robert to move out of their apartment. Their fights also got violent. Ryland, they Ryland. got violent. <laughs> <laughs> Robert said in the jinx that they were half arguments, fighting, slapping, pushing, wrestling. I don't think wrestling is the right term, but that's no. the quote that's in his <laughs> quote. And early in January of 1982, Kathy had been treated at a hospital in the Bronx for facial bruises. I, I don't know when in the timeline this happened, but apparently she did go to Robert and say that she wanted was seeking $250,000 in a divorce. I think there was also talk and I'm not really clear on how it happened, but supposedly maybe Robert was embezzling some money from the business, from the family corporation. So she also told this to their divorce lawyer, her divorce lawyer, and they were Mm -hmm. potentially using it as leverage on January 31st, 1982. So just weeks after she had been in the hospital, Mm -hmm. Bob and Katie, by the way, I always want to call him Rob, but he goes by Bob. So he doesn't feel like Bob to me. He feels like Robert to me. He does. Whatever. I'll start using them interchangeably, maybe. It's like Jeff and Jeff. Bob. Yeah. It seems yeah. very strange. Yes. Bob. Bob's too casual. Yeah. He doesn't even look like a Bob. So Robert and Kathy were at the cottage for the weekend. And Kathy went to a friend's house for dinner 40 minutes away. Robert said that it had been Kathy's plan. So she basically said to him, I'm going to this friend's house. Do you want to come with me? And he said, no. The friend says that she was having a party and Kathy wasn't actually invited, but called and said that she needed to come over. Yeah. And she came over looking disheveled and upset. So two kind of diverging stories there. Yeah. While she was there, she got a call from Robert telling her to come home. Mm-hmm. And so she told her friend, quote, he's really pissed. I have to go. There was some kind of argument that night when she got back. Yeah. Kathy had a pediatric clinic also the next day at school back in the city mm-hmm. that she needed to attend. But Robert said he needed the car. He says he dropped her off at the train station in Katona and then later talked to her on the phone that night Yeah, when she got back. Um, but she didn't show up for her clinic the next morning. The school received a phone call that she was sick, so they really weren't worried about her. Um, but when her friends didn't hear from her, they did get worried. Yeah. One friend in particular called the police a couple of times to try and report her missing, but... Um, they didn't take it seriously, but five days later, Robert did walk into a police station to talk to a detective. His name was Michael struck and he reported Kathy as missing. He told the detective that the marriage was not so bad. He said that he dropped Kathy off at the train and then went back and had a drink with his neighbors. He later full on admits in the jinx that he lied a bunch to the cops, like a bunch. (laughs) It's kind of funny. This guy's really weird. (laughs) I don't know. I said to Joel a couple of times and I thought it countless times as I listened to podcasts and watch this and read stories. He's just a weird dude. He's so weird. He looks weird. I don't know what he does. He doesn't have a look, but he just like, I look at him and he's like, yeah just he, i just perplexing yeah. 
is how he is. So he, he full on, he's like, yeah, I was just hoping that when I told them these things, they would leave me alone. It's like, Oh, well, I'm doing this now. I have to have something to tell them. So I'll tell them I had a drink with the neighbors, even though I totally didn't do it. Yeah. <laughs> no, maybe they'll leave me alone. He says he lied about talking to her on the phone that night. That never happened. Yeah. And he lied about having a drink with the neighbors. He said he dropped her off at the train station and then he just went home by himself. And the neighbors confirmed that they never had a drink <laughs> with him. They even said that they didn't see him for a few days after he dropped Kathy off. Yeah. But really, they kind of did take his word for it. As far as I can tell, there wasn't really an exhaustive search for her. Mm -hmm. They took the fact that the or the school got a phone call as her being okay yeah. and in the city at some point. And so they were kind of considering, well, if something happened, it must have been in the city yeah. and he wasn't in the city. So he had nothing to do with it. That's kind of the position that they took. Mm -hmm. That's so weird. Yeah. I never understand. Yeah. It this one doesn't make sense to me. Stuff like like I've always, no, in so many of these cases, big fan of the cops, not in Jeffrey Dahmer and not really here. Yeah. Sorry, detective Michael struck, but I just, I feel like that was a real misfire for you. And you wonder he had so much money. They were such a wealthy family. Mm -hmm. You wonder if that had something to do with it. Yeah. I didn't even find him particularly convincing or forthcoming really. At one point, um, Robert offered a hundred thousand dollar reward for information on Kathy. I don't know how long that lasted for. I saw mm -hmm. somewhere that he, dropped it at some point to 15,000, then got rid of it all completely. Also, supposedly a doorman saw Kathy on the morning of February 1st. So the day after, oh, okay. <laughs> but a private investigator actually hired by the Durst family found that that doorman. Yeah. And he said he never saw her. He said he wasn't even sure he was working that day, but he never saw her. What? <laughs> yeah. what? So, mm -hmm. so she was not seen at all or heard from yeah. After the 31st. Well, that's sketchy. Super sketchy. The friends, friends of hers also agreed. So they were worried and started investigating. Friends of Kathy started investigating. Oh, okay. They basically called themselves amateur sleuths. I mean, like that's and what I would do if you went missing. So thank you. <laughs> and vice versa. You can bet I'd be all about it. And we would probably solve the crime. If I go missing, well, who doesn't want a white woman solving their disappearance? <laughs> but I need you as my partner in crime. So stick around, please. Yeah, I'm not going anywhere. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> they have like this whole plan to steal the garbage from Robert and Kathy's place. And when they do, it turns out that Robert had been actually throwing Kathy's stuff away. Oh, her school books like that. She still needs to use makeup and other belongings. He's just throwing it all away. The whole place is in just kind of a mess. There's garbage bags. Her stuff is being just tossed. Cause that's not suspicious at all. Right. So you expect her to come back. Definitely not. Yeah. Like not if you're throwing her stuff away, yeah. that's a problem. Yeah. You fully think she's he, not coming back. He, he also had said to the cops at one point that he thought that she ran off with her Coke dealer. So I don't know, maybe this is like his excuse whatever. for throwing stuff away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One of the, one of the friends actually calls the cops. And I think I heard this on the generation Y podcast yeah. that they did an episode on him. And, uh, the friend is like, I called the cops. I admitted that I broke the law. I was breaking and entering and I found all of this stuff and they didn't even come. They didn't even come and arrest me for breaking and entering. <laughs> 
they didn't come look at the house and they didn't come to arrest me. She was pissed. That's super funny. What she did find is it like kind of a scribble note yeah. that said town dump bridge dig boat other shovel or check car or truck rentals. What? And it's kind of like in checklist yeah. form. Like some scribbles and lines around. Yeah. Like if you're trying to make a murder checklist and not make it seem like a murder <laughs> checklist, like you did it wrong. Yeah. Try harder. <laughs> make it like less easy to be like you killed her. But then the detective, so maybe this is the part where I was like, man, you're fucking sketchy. Yeah. Is he's talking, they ask him about this note, and he's like, Well, you know, it's February, so the note says dig and that doesn't make sense in February. So it's probably about something else. That's the only <laughs> reason that you didn't like look into the murder checklist. It's like, Oh, it's cold yeah. out. You can't dig into the frozen ground. No. To me, it looks like something that you would put on a dartboard and throw a dart at to decide your disposal method, town, dump, bridge, dig, boat, other shovel. <laughs> like, so they never, it never went anywhere. During this time, Susan Berman started acting as kind of a PR person for Robert, kind of. Yeah, so she handled all the media and any questions that came up and interviews and just basically helped him navigate through it all. Yeah. She told everyone that she was Kathy's best friend, even though all of the friends and family knew that Susan and Kathy really didn't get along that well. Susan was like, Kathy's not going to fit in. She's not one of us. That was kind of the sense that I got. Oh, okay. Like why they didn't get along. Yeah. Susan also basically supported Robert's idea and said that Kathy was addicted to Coke and probably ran off oh. as a result or with her dealer. So she also kind of repeated this story. As far as I can tell, nobody really took that seriously. Yeah. But So in 1990, Robert divorced Kathy on the grounds of abandonment. And then Kathy was declared legally dead in 2017. Oh, wow. That's a long time. Yeah, that's long time later. And this case goes over a long time. Mm -hmm. In 1988, Robert met Deborah Lee Sheraton, C-H-A-R-A-T-A-N, Sheraton, but not like the hotel chain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she was a real estate broker and Robert admired her and connected with her past. So mm -hmm. her parents were Holocaust survivors. They had a difficult relationship between the two of them and she was estranged from her mother. Okay. So he seems to like people who had difficult parental relationships. Yeah. Bonding over the trauma of childhood. Trauma bonds. Yeah, I guess. Nothing bonds I you guess. like trauma. Exactly. Who else has difficult relationships with their parents or dead ones? That's why they do stuff on The Bachelor, like make people like face fears, like on dates. Like they take the girl that's scared of heights and they make her them go like yeah. bungee jumping so that, oh. so that they like, he helps her through a, like a difficult situation. Ew, that's so manipulative. Yeah. It makes sense, but gross. Yeah, it's gross. Um, Deborah was going through a really pricey and very difficult divorce mm -hmm. and custody battle this time. Um, and I think Robert helped her out. So he gave her some money potentially from the company. Like he freely used company dollars for whatever yeah. he wanted. Just used it like his personal ATM, basically. Yeah. Oh. Shortly. So not well, not shortly. Two years after they met, they moved in together. Um, into what is described as Deborah's dream apartment oh. in Manhattan. And less than two years after they started living together, they started living separately. Oh, that's fast. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, some during the early 
nineties. Well, during the nineties, buckle up for this business (laughs) because this is ridiculous. There is this lifelong power struggle between Robert and his brother, Douglas. I think it's his, the older of the two brothers. So lifelong, lifelong. Douglas was always in charge and Robert. So Robert never really wanted anything to do with a family business ever. No, like he fucked off and went and opened like an air one or whatever grocery in, store. in some place. And yeah. then decided to exactly. come back. Vermont. Yeah. yeah. And he was notoriously unreliable. He was always showing up late or not at all for meetings. They could kind of maybe expect him in the office late morning, early afternoon. He might roll in. Like he was just not there. Super unreliable. Just like, mm-hmm. Yeah. And Douglas was there, did want to want to handle the business, was invested. But Robert was described as being very intelligent and had a really good strategic mind for real estate. So they were both vice presidents, though. It got so crazy that apparently one of them kept a plumber's wrench on their desk and the other kept (gasps) a pipe. Just in case. Just Just in case case. there's a casual brawl. It's ridiculous and gets ridiculous er because also Robert would frequently urinate in his brother's garbage can. <laughs> can you imagine? Like he's just going around in the office peeing, peeing in garbage cans. Jesus. I mean, at least he chose the garbage cans, but what yeah. the fuck, dude? His um Douglas, his brother, was <laughs> doing some succession planning. Yeah. I think that I think that. Seymour, his dad got sick. And so they were all kind of trying to prepare for what might happen next. Like who was going to take over, take over. The move was kind of low key until it wasn't anymore. But the idea was that Douglas would Mm -hmm. take over and then Robert would basically be relegated to like a honorary title basically, but he wouldn't be particularly involved. That did happen in December of 1994. He was named chairman from vice president and his brother became president. And once this happened, Robert left the office uh, and literally never went back. That was it. That was it for for the Durst corporate or Durst organization and Robert Durst. His dad was brokenhearted by this Seymour only saw Robert once more before he died. And he literally died the morning after Robert came and visited him. I think his sister had to beg him to come see his dad before his dad died. And the next morning she said he, he held on until he saw Robert and then he died. That's sad. That's so sad. And it gets even more sad because Robert decided that he would not show up to the funeral. What a dickhole. So (laughs) selfish. Such a like a Mm -hmm. douche. He's a turbo douche. So his, the case of his wife was cold during all this time. Like it really didn't go anywhere until the police actually decide to reopen it in 2000, which is 18 years after she goes missing. Why they actually reopened it is a detective got a tip about the case that didn't really end up panning out, but it got him really interested in it again. He started re-interviewing everybody that was involved. He also sent divers into South Salem Lake. Finally, I'm not sure why they didn't do this in the first place, but they didn't. So he clearly saw that, no, it's much more likely that the murder site is in South Salem, the lake that they were, that their cottage was at, not in the city. 
Um, but unfortunately they, they never ended up finding anything. Robert was funneling money out of his bank accounts at this point. Basically like once he heard that they had reopened the case, he started taking $9,000 out of his bank account at a time. So it wouldn't flag and he quickly. So then he marries Deborah Sheraton on December 11th, 2000. Yeah. And he signs a power of attorney granting control of everything to her. He literally describes it as a marriage of convenience. He's just the nicest person. Oh, romantic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He really respects other people. Just people are just like pawns for his. Yeah. Like what he needs to get done. Whatever he wants. Yeah. Or like, it's like whatever his whim of the day is. You want to talk about a whim, get a, get a load of what's about to happen next days after he marries Deborah in mid-December of 2000, Bob flies down to Galveston, Texas and rents a super tiny apartment for $300 a month. Why? Like, and just stays there. Yes. He, uh, he also rents this apartment as a mute woman named Dorothy Siner. <laughs> like <laughs> he, he dress up as a woman and go and rent it. Yes. Yes. He talks in the, in the documentary about getting a wig. And, you know, since he'd never be able to disguise his voice as a woman's, he just, he had to pretend to be me. I'm picturing like when they dress up in jackass, just go in a red part. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. But he can't speak because she's mute. So he just writes a note. That's weird. Yeah. Yeah. Prepays for this tiny apartment for this mute woman for a full year. Oh, wow. So twist. On December 24th, 2000, so same month that he rents this hotel room, the police find the body of Susan Berman. She, but she was just doing... That was the face of genuine <laughs> surprise. <laughs> what? She was just doing PR for him. Yeah, I don't so understand. she was... She was. I know. So she was found in her home with a gunshot wound to the back of her head. The coroner said that she had probably been dead for 24 hours based on rigor mortis, the state of rigor mortis that her body was in. The back door was open and her dogs were running around outside. I think they're like literally football dogs. They're like those annoying little yappy things. The neighbors did not like these asshole dogs. Yeah. The neighbors did not like these dogs though. And so the fact that they're just running around outside, the neighbors called the cops, the cops go and they find Jesus. There was also a letter that was sent to the cops that was, I think it was postmarked or or I don't think it was dated. So it would have been postmarked Mm -hmm. on the 23rd of December. So the day before they found her, the envelope was addressed to the Beverly Hills Mm -hmm. police and inside had a letter with Susan's address And the word cadaver, the word Beverly was also spelled wrong. So there was an extra E between the L and the Y on the, yeah, on the letter. That's weird. Yeah. The case never really went anywhere. So there was talk about maybe it was old mafia ties from her family that came back because there was a rumor that she was writing another book or they were pissed about something that she wrote in the first two books. Um, But the books had been written years ago. Yeah. 10 and 15 years ago, I think it was like 86 and 91 or something like that, that these books were written and she was killed in the end of 2000. So that doesn't make a lot of sense. And she had also 
piss somebody off. I think she was in a disagreement with her landlord or something, but there were a few ideas that were floated. Nothing really went anywhere though. It also eventually came out that she was super duper broke. And so she was literally calling all of her friends up and asking them for money in the documentary they go through. And I don't know if this is an accurate list, but they're literally going through names and dollar amounts and the dollar amounts are all in the thousands. Yeah. That's, I don't know. So I don't know how she was asking for money. There was one of her friends that kind of said that Susan could be manipulative and then didn't really expand after that statement. So I don't know. Maybe she's holding some things over some people's heads. Maybe. Maybe there's some blackmail business going on. Maybe not. I don't know. But good old buddy Bob Durst gave Susan two checks of $25,000 Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I might give you $1,000, but I for sure would not give you $25,000. <laughs> it's good to know where we stand, Because I don't have it to give to you. <laughs> One day. I'll be able to give you $25,000, but not one, two checks of $25,000. That's a lot. That's all we know about Susan for (laughs) Weirdly on September 30th, 2001, a fisherman and his son come across the torso of a man floating in the ocean. Just a random torso. Basically, yes. When this detective is talking about finding this, like mm-hmm. seeing this body and starting the investigation, he's like, I just picked it up by the breastbone. The casual way that he said it really, really was kind of hilarious and very jarring to me when I heard it. It's- they looked a bit further and they found a whole bunch of floating garbage yeah. bags. And inside each bag, they find basically individually wrapped pieces of body. So each piece is triple wrapped and the bags have like, there's one with an arm or two with arms and two with very dextery. It is super dextery, but they never find the head. They also find in the bags, a receipt for a bunch of things purchased from a hardware store, including garbage bags and a saw. And they find a newspaper and on the newspaper, they are able to distinguish an address. So they find that that body belongs to a man named Morris Black, who lived at the address on the newspaper. So that fits. The cops go to the address and they find blood actually outside and up the porch stairs and inside leading to apartment two. It's like if you take as much care to dismember and triple wrap body parts yeah. Wipe up the blood yes because this blood evidence is what gives the cops the ability to get a warrant to search mm-hmm. the apartment and in the kitchen area there's linoleum and there's scratch marks on the mm-hmm. linoleum yeah. in one spot and so they pull up the linoleum and underneath there's blood that has soaked oh. through the yeah. scratch marks and so it's pretty easy to determine that that was where morris black yeah. was killed but Alex, who the fuck is Morris Black? What does he have any relevance? (laughs) Yeah, that was my next question. So, weirdly, apartment two just so happens to be the one that the mute woman rented. What is the mute woman doing? (laughs) Don't know. Neither do the cops. Like, they're looking around the apartment and they're thinking, this does not look like a woman lives here at all. 
and they keep looking and they find a receipt or like it's a receipt, I think, or an invoice or something that um, has the name Robert Durst on it. So remember, we're in Galveston. So they wouldn't need anything else. No, exactly. No. And anything else that has been going on has either happened in Mm -hmm. L.A. or has happened in New York. They're like, well, okay, I don't know who this guy is. I also don't know who this mute Dorothy is. So they, the receipt was the, the piece of paper that had Robert's name on it was from an optometrist's office. So they go to the optometrist and they, the optometrist says, well, it just so happens that Robert Durst is actually going to come pick up his glasses shortly. And so he is arrested outside the optometrist. He's not very careful. So weird and dumb and entitled. Yeah, is it just like he thinks he can get away with it? Or is he just I honestly, I don't know. And there's so many ways that this story just gets weirder and weirder and weirder and weirder. Oh, joy. (laughs) Yeah. His bail is set at 20, or excuse me, $250,000. Because again, like, it's pretty high. They don't necessarily know know who who he is. I don't think so. And remember, he's not been arrested for anything to this point. There have been people that he knows that have disappeared and died, but he's never been arrested for anything. So his bail is set at $250,000 and good old Deborah sends him the money to make bail. And, uh, and then Robert disappears. Also makes sense. That that tracks. Yeah. He says in the jinx, he's like, well, what do they expect is going to happen if you're like potentially facing jail time and you get, you make bail. What else are you going to do? Obviously you're going to run. Like he's just so matter of fact about it. And like when you have more money than God, like just, yeah, exactly. So he shaves his head and his eyebrows and he just takes off on the run. Just like a weird hairless mole rat running from. (laughs) That's what he looks like though. But get this shit, Lindsay. You want to know how this motherfucker yeah, gets I do. Caught? I'm very excited. You so do because 45 later, for, excuse me, 45 days okay. later, despite having hundreds of dollars in his pocket, this guy, Bob, he deserves <laughs> Bob at this point. This guy, Bob, tries to steal a chicken salad sandwich and a single band-aid. <laughs> What? I am not even joking. I'm not even joking. Man, you're trying to shoplift. Like what? How much is the sandwich? Yeah. Three bucks? And like one band-aid? Rip your shirt and like tie. That's nuts. Well, and like you can see, they have security footage. So you can see him opening the box and taking a band-aid out. And then just like walking away and he's looking around, he grabs the sandwich and he leaves. <laughs> like, I just, I, I don't understand this at all. When he's asked about it, he says, yeah, I just thought I'd try and see if I could get away with it. I guess he's more easily caught for shoplifting than he is for murder at this point. Like That's I just, ridiculous. his give a fuck was all the way gone and his, I am untouchable was all the yeah. way there. <laughs> He went on trial for this murder in 2003 and Robert actually takes the stand in his own defense. He said that he and Morris were Mm -hmm. friends to the point where Bob actually comes clean and tells Morris that he isn't an old mute woman, but instead he's a real estate hare who's constantly under suspicion for murder. Just like while they were hanging out watching TV one day, he's like, by the way, I can actually talk and I'm not a woman. And I have a lot of money. <laughs> like, 
<laughs> I don't know how that happened. It's so weird. And Morris is described as an extremely crotchety old man. And when you see his picture, he just looks so grumpy, yeah. so grumpy. He's the grumpiest guy. And th- somebody tells a story where somebody like a kid is smoking on their front, their own front mm-hmm. porch doors down from the apartment apartment that Morris yeah. is renting. And Morris would walk over there and give this kid shit for smoking on his own porch because it's bothering yeah. Morris. Like he's that That's old funny. man. He's, he's like the old guy. man from monster. House. Yeah. I, I don't know how that guy goes from like, I'm going to befriend this old mute woman and totally not care that it's actually a, realist rich real estate guy from new york <laughs> did he did he say like why he killed him well <laughs> so his story is that morris is getting evicted which is true they have the eviction notice so more bob says that morris was in his apartment when he came home one day and morris was super agitated because he's uh-huh. getting evicted morris takes a gun while Robert is in another room and he shoots his eviction notice because he's trying to show it who's boss. Okay. Yeah. There's no bullet hole found in the eviction mm-hmm. notice or in the apartment, but that's apparently neither here nor there. So in self-defense, Robert goes after the gun and there's an epic struggle, which him and his defense attorney, one of the two very expensive defense mm-hmm. attorneys that he has, they play this out in yeah. court. And after this epic struggle, <laughs> Robert ends up shooting Morris in the face accidentally. No. Well, <laughs> and then, ah, shit. Morris is already dead. So what are you going to do? Fuck it. Just dismember him. It gets worse because there's this super aggressive DA mm-hmm. named Janine Pirro, and she's reinvestigating my wife's disappearance. And like, really, she's the bad guy in this story. And she made me dismember my friend Morris because nobody was going to believe that this was self-defense. So I just had to dismember him. And the lawyers also say, yeah, we had to make Janine the bad guy in this story. So that's that was the strategy. That doesn't make zero amount of sense. No, it makes also no sense to me at all. You want to know what else doesn't make sense? Guy was found not guilty. What? Not guilty of murder. How? Like how? That's fucking. One of the jurors came out after and she said, you know, the burden of proof was on the state and we just don't feel we kept going back to um, the charge that was in front of us. And we did not feel that they they proved that it was murder. And somebody else, another juror said that at no point did Robert ever have more than three votes of guilty against him. Holy shit. Gets off scot-free. Even though he literally admits to killing this guy, he's found not guilty of murder. That's crazy. The story continues and continues on the crazy train. After all of this happens, so that the trial was 2003 and the movie All Good Things Um, which is the same name as the grocery store that came out in 2010. And after it came out, I guess Robert really liked the, the movie. (laughs) So he reached out to the filmmaker, Mm -hmm. Andrew Jarecki. So he said he wanted to help Jarecki make a different kind of film, like not true crime, but something else, but like definitely about Robert. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Thus 
the Jinx documentary is born. So during the documentary filming, the filmmakers were given access to a letter that Robert had sent to Susan Berman. So basically the documentary, they go through all of this stuff. They interview all of Mm -hmm. the people. And a lot of my references come from that. A lot of this comes from that documentary and he's interviewed in it because he's like friggin' fully on board with this idea. He brought it up to the Mm -hmm. filmmaker during this filming. The filmmakers were given access to a letter that Robert had sent to Susan Berman, who he calls Susie while he was still working at the Durst organization. So pre 94, the handwriting and the misspelling of the word Beverly was the same as it was on the yeah. cadaver letter that was sent to the Beverly Hills police after Susan was died, was, was died after she was murdered. When this was shown to him and this is like, I kid you not. So this is a six episode mm-hmm. miniseries, and it is shown. This letter is found and it's basically the basis for the entire sixth yeah. episode. And the letter is found kind of halfway through mm-hmm. that episode And then they go through this whole process of how are we going to talk to him about it and how are we going to bring it up? And then Robert doesn't want to be involved anymore and he's being really weird and squirrely and all this shit happens. Anyways, they bring it up to him in the last like 10 minutes of the episode. And so they show Mm -hmm. him the letter and they're like, what's this? He's like, oh, that looks like a letter that I wrote to... To, mm-hmm. to my friend like well when did you send it oh well it was when i was still at the company and i left the company in 94 95 so before that and what's what's really about this well this is the envelope that it came in okay yeah it has the address of the office that i worked out of and yeah and there's susan and her address and the word beverly is spelled wrong yep oh okay well what about this cadaver letter that was sent to the police all the writing looks pretty similar and he Mm -hmm. admits it that the writing looks similar and they're like well did you write this letter and he's like nope i definitely didn't and they show him they take beverly hills and they put the Beverly Hills from the cadaver letter and the Beverly Hills from the letter that he wrote. And they only put those two words on a piece of paper and they show him that. And they said, which one did you not write? And he's like, I don't know. And his reaction happens somewhere in there as he's kind of like trying to dig himself out of this hole. And he's like hiccuping and he's rubbing his face. He's burping and stuttering and he's like he's all over the place and he totally totally loses his composure he's got some kind of big facial movements all the way through so as you're watching you kind of feel like well is that a tick are you lying especially if you know the background of the case Mm -hmm. before you watch you're like you're fucking lying because you have like this it's almost like he has a hard blink at the end of a lot of sentences so it seems like a tick but then when he's shown these two letters and he's like, ah, well, uh, ooh, ooh, and he's like making all of these uh-huh. mouth sounds and having these GI yeah. issues, it's obvious. Yeah. Like it's obviously yeah. different. The filmmakers just kind of say, uh-huh. okay, like, well, all right. And they're like, well, we're done. You want to take a sandwich with you? So they're turning off all the lights and they're kind of shepherding him out. He's saying, can I go to the bathroom? They said, yes. And he goes to the bathroom. He still has his mic on. Mm -hmm. He proceeds to say, and I quote, and he says each of these sentences separately. Okay. Okay. So he says, there it is. You're caught. 
you're right, of course, but you can't imagine. Arrest him. I don't know what's in the house. Oh, I want this. What a disaster. He was right. I was wrong. And the burping. I'm having difficulty with the question. What the hell did I do? Killed them all, of course. Oh my God. That's the end of the documentary. <laughs> like literally, like they're turning off the lights in the room. All the cameras are still there and you can hear them. So it is a direct result mm-hmm. of this, which came out in 2015 mm-hmm. that Robert was arrested and charged with first degree murder in the killing of yeah. Susan Berman. Good. He said earlier when she first died that he had an alibi. He said he wasn't in LA at the time, but he had flown into Northern California and then can be traced driving down yeah. the coast. And then he disappears for a couple of days. And then he is um, basically back on the radar when he flies back oh. to Galveston. So, yeah. So it was basically like a bullshit yeah. alibi. Interestingly. So he was found mm-hmm. guilty in September yeah. of this year of 2021. Oh. And he was sentenced to life in prison on October 14th, 2021. Wow. This guy's fucking 78 years old, but I mean, he was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. So a few more years. He also had COVID. So we don't know how many more years that is. Like he got to live so much of his life. Yeah. And then he was literally charged yesterday, Mm -hmm. November 1st, 2021, with the second degree killing of his wife in 1982. Nearly 40 years ago. But at least he's finally in jail. I think a family member of Susan's was quoted as saying, I hope he lives to be older than a hundred. So he spends a lot of time in jail. Basically. Like I hope he lives out a very long rest of his life. Just rotting. Man, that episode was so, so twisty, but I feel like in the end it proved what we asked in the beginning that no matter how long it takes, you cannot get away with murder. And also Don't forget to send us any drink recipes or crimes you'd like us to cover. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Drunk Crime Pod, our website, drunkcrimepod.com, or you can email us at drunkcrimepod at gmail.com. Also, check out our Patreon where you can get some sweet extras for signing up. That's at patreon.com slash drunkcrimepod. Catch us back here next Friday for another episode of Drunk Crime. Cheers! Thank mm-hmm. you.